You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com. And when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention uncommentary, uh, on some books, you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation. But when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check them out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time. And then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you. And he can handle it uh, right there through your email. And uh, it's really, really encouraging to him. And so I encourage you to check them out. Well, this is the first roundtable I think I've done on Uncommentary. If it's not, it's probably going to be the most memorable one of uh, any others that I've done. I'm really happy to have three uh, pastor friends with me today, one from Chicago, one from uh, Miami, and one from uh, Brooklyn or Brooklyn-ish. For people who are not in New York, there's only New York. Everything else is just a rumor that we heard on Law & Order. No, it doesn't really exist anywhere. <laughs> Uh, so John, why don't we start with you and we'll roll around and, um, just give a, a little bio on yourself. Yeah. My name is John Kelly. Um, I serve as the lead pastor at Chicago West Bible church. We located on the West, on the West side in the Austin neighborhood. Um, been the lead pastor here for five years. We planted the church five years ago. Um, I also serve, uh, an organization called prison fellowship, um, doing a lot of advocacy work. Um, policy stuff and helping equip churches to be able to care for men and women in their context who have criminal records and families and uh, married to my lovely wife Danielle for 10 years um, we got two boys uh, Ben and Judah and uh, just good to be on here hanging out with y'all Trey hey everybody man I'm uh, I'm Trey I'm an associate uh, pastor one of the elders down here at the Refuge Church in Homestead, Florida, Miami-Dade County, 305. You might have heard of it time or two. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, married to my wonderful wife, Jessica. We got three kids who, depending on the day of the week, they could be pretty dope. But I don't know. It's been like a year and some change being locked in the house together. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm also uh, one of the three hosts of the Three Black Men podcast with a couple brothers of mine. Uh, we talk about theology, culture, and the world around us. Um, yeah, man, that's about it. So are you a third? Is it something or another? The third is your name or did your parents just name you three because you know, of whatever. Yeah, I am the third. Okay. I am RGA Ferguson. The third, the, the initials is a secret for the most part. <laughs> okay. Uh, detective work coming. Uh, James, <laughs> you are the, uh, James is the owner of one of the most false photographs I have ever seen in my life the one where uh you're like two or something and your dad and your granddad and your great granddad is that it yeah my great grandfather yeah yeah so who are you and where are you uh, i'm james C. roberson the third justice roberson is in that that picture who was born in the late 1800s and his dad was a slave mm. henry roberson uh but yeah i'm in brooklyn new york downtown brooklyn uh, my church is next to the barclay center i started it 
several years ago. We planted the church. And um, uh, yeah, so I'm the lead pastor and uh, I'm married 18 years this year. I have three daughters, uh, Faith, Leah, and Sophia. And um, uh, I, I also lead an organization called Pray March Act, which is a, an organization that is a collective of churches focused on anti-racism. And so we do some, we do some, we try to uh, get churches mobilized uh, to look at disparities in their community and to fight and do advocacy work and policy work. Um, and um, yeah, that's what we do. Very cool. Now, before we, uh, before I made y'all start having fellowship so that I could do an introduction, uh, James was rolling on about uh, seeing Trey. I think your words were roast somebody on Twitter. He literally said, I would like to roast people and folks lined up and we're like, choose to pick me. And he, just, he just literally just this, it was a diss track and it was an infinite amount of people. And I was, for one, I've, I've personally never seen that before. I the never heard that he like was that. a pastor made it even better. You know, we have to be fake every now and then, like, if Twitter knew the real me, I would be canceled. And yeah. <laughs> so I was like, this is raw. This is as real. This is as good, raw as, man. And so I just followed him. I followed him after that. I know nothing about this man. I <laughs> talk, I'm talking to him for the first time. But outside of that, I became a fan. I don't know his theology. I know his comedy. I don't know. Comedy. <laughs> Orthodox. <laughs> He's an wow. orthodox comedian. All right. Oh, man. This comedy. Dude, I, oh, it was wonderful. That's awesome. So the the, the funniest so part good. about that though, right, is that's that's actually like the third time, I think. Either the second or the third time on when you saw that happen. And the first time it happened, right? Like y'all, y'all know y'all know what black Twitter is, right? Like it's it's just mm-hmm. it's just I don't, I don't know how how much white people know about Black Twitter, but Black Twitter is a thing. I, know, I don't it's, know it's, either, but I know about it. Yeah, it it, uh, it it brings me great joy. But every now and then, they had this thing. Um, the first time I did it, um, was I, I was I was dealing with with my people on Black Twitter and the whole uh, "What does it look like I do for a living?" game, right? Like you play, you post a picture and people roast you. It is what it is. So I started doing that, and sometime last year during the pandemic, like white people started following me, like white Christians. I don't know how or when it happened. It just did. Um, and they start submitting pictures, and I'm like, I don't know if y'all know what y'all signing up for, but too late. It's out here. So I started doing it. <laughs> And before you know it, I'm dead serious. I think I spent like 12 hours just roasting white people. Like my phone is blowing up now because people I went to school and they're like, Trey, what are you doing? Like all these white people. Like, I was like, I don't know. Like, but I feel like it's racist if I don't. You know what I'm saying? And what, what I realized, what I realized though, is that it was a matter of inclusion, right? Like people saw something and they just wanted to be a part of something. And what I told people after that very first time, I was like, the reason I kept going, because it was literally 12 hours, like, um, and, and, and to the point people started like, donating like yo you're actually putting in work right now um and i was like it it became for me a matter of of belonging and community and i started viewing it as like an act of ministry so if you notice you're like yeah i was roasting people and stuff but i didn't really go too hard on nobody because it wasn't about like embarrassing anybody it was like sometimes you know you get with your boys and stuff y'all just be going in on each other um and and i just ended up doing that with a bunch of people so sometimes if i get a little extra time on my hands or if if i'm bored enough like i'll be like all right man i'm gonna let these jokes 
fly and people come and it's honestly something I enjoy doing because like I recognize that people want to feel included and and, and, and they yeah. want that sense of belonging. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's dope how God can work in all in different ways, man. So the fact that he just turned roasting into a ministry is like seeing water turn into wine. <laughs> it's miraculous. And I felt it too. It was like, we oh, didn't embarrass him. I'm like, word. Yeah, that's, that's true. I don't even know. But I believe it. That's awesome, man. That's incredible. I enjoyed well, it. I really did. I didn't get in line to get roasted, dude. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I get that from time to time. And I almost feel bad because like I don't want to be seen as a bully enough. Like I didn't go out my <laughs> nah, way. Nah, so nah. yeah. Oh, but hey, so it Marty, is what it is. Marty, what he's saying is don't get him no ammo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't don't just keep your cards to your chest, man. Don't, don't no ammo. He'll pull that out on you next month, man. Uh, dude, I'm on Twitter too much. I, I leave ammo all around the place. It's, it's just <laughs> too hard. John, talk a little bit about your um your involvement with prison ministry. That's um and and not only like prison ministry, but talk a little bit about reform. So whether you want to go down the policing road or where you want to talk about prison reform or, or some combination of that, I'm sure I see James nodding. He's probably got some input into that. But that's a huge conversation right now, and um, I, I'd like to hear your take on some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's my world. Um, just a quick 30-second trailer. Uh, spent most of my teenage years in a juvenile detention center, so I was pretty much not home most of my teenage years. So first time I ever got convicted, I think I was like 12, 13. I was like 13. Mm. Um, landed in prison for being involved in a, a shooting that took the life of a young man. Unfortunately, I was 19 and had a 6- to 20-year sentence. That's where I came to faith in Christ. And uh, ever since I came home from prison in 2008, I've just been active trying to not forget where I came from, but obviously got a glimpse behind the wall to see a bigger picture. I mean, I've been involved in probably five or six different youth detention centers, multiple state prisons and county jails. And and then I've been on parole with about 30 different parole officers in two different states in Pennsylvania and Illinois. I'm literally still on supervision. This is my last year for the last 20 years. I get all I did you know, 14 years, I did, I did 14 years of kind of in prison and parole. And then I'm finishing up five years of probation and I'm done Wow. of everything from 2002 prison fellowship. I serve with advocacy work. So policy stuff, and then also helping churches to care for people in their context. Um, as far as reform, um, the thing I like about right now is uh, truth be told uh, prison reform is like the only thing that Republicans and Democrats agree with. <laughs> Like, it's like, it's like the cool thing. It's the hip thing. Like you just like, if you want to get elected, just start talking about prison reform. And like, you know, like there it's, it's, if anything, it's a different approach to it. Uh, Republicans care more about helping you once you're in and getting you to programs to get out. The Democrats tend to care more about prevention. Like, Hey, if they couldn't, you know, they shouldn't be in prison anyway, because of whatever situation. Um, I think our focus, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been hard because there's a lot of education that goes on in reform, whether you talk about police reform. We've been actually in prison fellowship entering the conversation more about police reform. That wasn't a category for us. Mm. Um, but <clears throat> we work on a lot of different policy stuff and across the aisle. So, for example, one thing we did, we worked on in 2019 was the First Step Act. Um, if you were in federal prison, you couldn't get any federal aid if you wanted to better yourself, especially if you had a conviction for a drug offense. Mm. Um, if you were a woman and you were, you were women and you were giving birth, you had to be handcuffed and shackled to the bedpost. Um, that's so inhumane, right? Mm. So, so there's a lot of different resources that we always fight for and advocate for because um, one men and women with criminal records are created in the image of God and uh, have dignity and worth um, Two. Most people are returning back home to Brooklyn, 
Miami, the suburbs. I don't know if you know this, um, but one in three adults in America has a criminal record. Like that's a fact. That's a of crazy all fact. adults. All adults. Wow. Yeah, you can Google that. One in three adults in America has a criminal record. Reason why it's not that prevalent, and some probably, you know, oftentimes people think it's a minority issue, is because of the culture of shame. People don't really talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, but taxpayers foot the bill. And so when people come home, like whatever the government decides to do, taxpayers pay for it. So right now, this is a big picture um, thing is we're just trying to advocate for policies um, at state levels, national levels, and work with churches and governors um, to be able to make sure that men and women um, who are coming, who are in prison, have the resources they need. Men and women who shouldn't be in prison mm-hmm. um, don't get sent there. We can't use prison as the, the, the solution for mental health. In addictions, you can't just be like, you know, send them, let them go to jail and get clean. And we want to make sure that men and women who come home don't face barriers. Mm -hmm. Um, There's about like, I think, 50,000 barriers we recorded at Prison Fellowship that men and women face who come home um, that hinders them and sets them back up for failure to go back to to prison. So when we talk about the area of prison reform, it is so vast, so large, it's broken down state by state with different you know, areas. Um, but it's something that's dear to my heart and that I'm going to do until the Lord calls me home. So let me jump in. James, when I first started posing that question to John, I could see your, you were nodding your head kind of in my peripheral vision. Uh, what you got to add? Well, not necessarily the prison reform tip, although John, I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, later with you about the potential of us. I don't dream it up something here, but what, what, uh, Maybe the reason I nodded my head was just because I know that that is just an, an issue that we've been working our way towards. As an organization, we have been working somewhat on a what they call the Right to Remain Silent campaign. Mm. The Right to Remain Silent campaign is birthed out of what we saw in the Central Park Five, which was on um, the Netflix show When They mm-hmm. See Us. Essentially, when a child is taken in um, by the police, a child can waive their Miranda rights. And now a child, an adolescent, is now speaking from a legal point of view. Mm-hmm. And we would not let a child go to the doctor by themselves. Child can't drink on their own. Child can't go to the military on his own. We think that a parent or a guardian is necessary in almost every sphere of life. But we think a child can speak for his own when it comes to law. So the Right to Remain Silent campaign is something that we've begun to work on. But um, to be honest with you, a lot of what I'm doing right now is trying to focus our people because we've got these churches that want to get involved with advocacy work, with policy work. We started right after George Floyd was killed. We did a um, a march in um downtown right by the Barclays Center. We had 5,000 people come out. And I was on a ladder in front of the Barclays Center with a megaphone. And I got off the ladder. And then when I got off, people were like, what's next? And I was like, Pray March Act is a hashtag. (laughs) Literally, that's all we're doing. And so from there, we've gotten churches together. We're looking at different things that we can advocate for, but we're doing a lot of structural stuff. So the Right to Remain Silent campaign is something that we've been working on, um, but a lot of what we're doing now is structural stuff. To be quite honest with you, getting churches all from the progressive and the evangelical sphere to come together, one, we have like a, a biblical framework to get in to become a member, but two, to, to pare down and figure out what we want to do together is a lot of what we're working towards. So 
Um, that's why I'm saying I, I was probably nodding my head to just out of interest mm. uh, hearing John, because I think we're trying to move a lot of the people we are utilizing right now towards a direction we can get all our churches to go. Well, I love that uh, right to remain silent thing, not just for kids, but for anybody uh, who comes into contact with law enforcement. Unfortunately, the Fifth Amendment has this reputation that you only use it if you're guilty. And um, it's actually for the benefit of the people who haven't done anything. So I got pulled over for speeding one day about four years ago on the way to church on a Sunday morning. And um, <clears throat> I may or may not have been just a little bit over the speed limit, but the officer pulled me over right in front of the church. And um, he said, do you know how fast you were going? Well, I had long ago learned that you don't ever answer that question. And so I said, well, I, and I could honestly say I wasn't sure. So I said, I'm really not exactly sure. He said, well, how fast do you think you were going? I said, well, I don't really think I need to be guessing at something like that. And he tried it again. And I kind of looked at him. I said, officer, I don't want to cause you to have a bad day, but uh, I'm not going to incriminate myself on this question. So I'm just going to have to take the fifth amendment. And I think he almost passed out taking the fifth amendment at a tra- at a speeding stop. <laughs> and he tried again. And I, and I just said, sir, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but I'm just not going to incriminate myself on that question. Mm-hmm. So he finally told me how fast the radar said I was going, which was probably right. Uh, and then he just said, well, have a good day. And he gave me my license back. So um, for anybody now, I realize I'm a 50 something year old white dude. So it's pretty much a given that's going to happen. But mm-hmm. um, he, uh, so anybody that's listening, the fifth amendment is your friend. And I'm really happy to hear that you guys are working in a situation like that to keep kids out of trouble, especially when they're in over their head with cops. Um, Trey, um, do you have any, ex- I, I don't want to say do you have any experience with jail, but um, do you have uh, anything to add on this particular thing? Uh, um, my, my, my brother's pretty much uh, had a cover right there. I, I was listening to your story and, and my eyes got big when you talked about getting your license back and going home because I had a similar story, except when I got my license back, it was attached to a court date, like not even a ticket, like just a court date. Um, and that was my first uh experience with the uh justice system of this country back in college matter of fact it was my freshman year of college my first year down here in miami on the way back from a party in tallahassee i probably had no business being that but um yeah i got caught speeding and it went a little bit differently for me i had to uh <laughs> uh maybe maybe uh procure the services of a lawyer or two and and um <laughs> and I, I, it was just uh an interesting illustration from from a, a young 18 year old yeah. uh black kid called speeding on yeah. one, one situation and then uh, just that juxtaposition is always interesting to me yeah uh it, it's interesting to me too um and i i know i'm the beneficiary of a lot of that stuff and i try not to take it for granted um what is um so i want to i want to in a few minutes i want to address one of the things that's been real prevalent in kind of our evangelical circles Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about, um, just what's going on, uh, since maybe George Floyd. So let me, let me tell you guys, uh, James, you and I probably had this conversation, uh, when you were speaking at some NAM thing. Uh, so, and I'm going to compress it a little bit, but, um, I mean, I was raised, uh, believe it or not a white dude in the South and everything that comes with that is, was just normal for me. So Stone Mountain, I lived with almost within the shadow of Stone Mountain with the big Confederate uh, Jefferson and um, not Jefferson, but Jefferson Davis and Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee on the side. Never had any reason to question anything having to do with my heritage at all. <clears throat> I didn't have Confederate flags or anything like that, but I didn't oppose them or think anything negative about them at all. 
Um, so it was probably after, um, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson that, um, I decided to have lunch with several African-American men, some in my church and some at work. And that was really when I started getting like personal stories. I'd done some reading. I was becoming aware of some things that I might not have ever experienced, but it was sitting and listening to these guys tell stories about their interactions with law enforcement, their perceptions of the world. Um, I'll never forget one guy saying, um, he said, when I go outside every day, it's like there's this big conversation going on around me and I know what's going on, but I can't quite make out what everybody is saying. And, um, and so that really began to open my eyes a little bit that what I had experienced in life was significantly different than what a lot of other guys, especially African-American men had experienced in their lives. So after, um, so I began to read and study and, and try to discern some differences. Well, after George Floyd hit, uh, the after in the aftermath of that, I should say, um, I began to consider, my theological heritage in a way that I never had before. And I will tell you that for me, that was an entirely different type of thing Um, to begin to question where were not just my personal blind spots, but where were like generations of theological blind spots that have been passed down to me that I'd never had any reason to question because every, everybody that I knew believed the basic same thing about uh, everything. So, uh, I guess the question is, um, theologically speaking, what are, what are some of the things that you guys perceive are different in what maybe a primarily black church experience would have, uh, birthed down the line versus what a kind of a white evangelical space would have brought down the line. And is there any reconciling to any of those things and, and kind of what would it take for, uh, especially guys like me who were in the dominant culture position for so long to, to see what some of the side strands would be that we might've missed. Uh, James, you're the elder statesman here. Let's start with you. Am I? I think so. How old are you? What? Mm-hmm. What? I'm 44. Holy smoke. Yes. The great man. Church planting to do that to you, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know how you know how they show the pictures of like the presidents in their first their first year and then like later they look like they, it's like 30 years later yeah yeah I was born in 1976 holy smoke dude i was in middle school that's just that's what happens when uh Good. you lose your hair early you're chubby and you got gray hair signed <laughs> to you they, they think i'm too spots but nonetheless i'll say i'll I generally get that. Um, uh, I think your question is what what things have been missed. I think, let me just talk about white evangelicals to just, rather than doing a comparison. One of the things about white evangelicals in general is they, from a theological point of view, they, they tend to uh, do a lot of work in the, evangelism and the discipleship spaces with Matthew 28 kind of being the central text by which everything operates. Once you move out of that sphere of the conversion world, right? Um, Getting people into heaven, training people for the mission, 
there tends to be a very myopic understanding of history. And I would even say probably if there is an understanding of history, it's probably more like propaganda um, than it is an honest retelling of a history filled with suffering of minorities and indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in light of that, because there is no scope of injustice within the church history narrative, and there's only this theology of evangelism and discipleship, what you end up having is you have a training system that trains men and women to convert people, but not fully to understand their situation. Mm. I think ultimately when you had say segregation, um, the evangelical church went from segregation and then started talking about diversity, like a crossover better than now. It's like, you know, we just, <laughs> and we're just going to talk about what wow. y'all can't keep, keep out. Welcome something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the, and the problem, the problem yeah. with having a, a segregation to diversity crossover is it doesn't have, it doesn't, if this is what, Sung Chan Ra's brought out. It doesn't allow for a moment of lament. It doesn't allow for a moment of to repent, but it doesn't also allow a moment to ask ourselves the deeper question. What in our theology allowed us to do this? Mm -hmm. Because functionally, the evangelical church preaches no different than it did 50 years ago. There's nothing functionally different. And that's why this, the advent of this CRT conversation they're actually right in the in the sense of like when Bodie Bauckham says the church is changing when um, you know uh, Owen Strack or whatever those all the all those guys when they all say the church is changing they're right they're actually right we got to get we got to give them their props they are pointing out the fact that white evangelical churches are now giving a conversation about justice. They're marching in marches. That is a stark contrast and change. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham had no problem inviting Martin Luther King to his rally. He had no problem inviting. He was in, it was in New York in like 1968. He invited him to the rally, took down the, he didn't want segregation to be at the rally. Billy Graham would let Martin Luther King come to his rally, but Billy Graham wasn't going to no marches with Martin Luther King. Right. Because, and he, to me, is the, to me, that is the signature way in which evangelicalism understands um, justice. Mm. Justice actually is keeping you from hell, not necessarily caring about your body on earth. Mm -hmm. So I think, and then, you know, not to go into the black church much, but the black church is birthed out of protest. Yeah. The black church is birthed out of reconstructing a society, having invisible church and moving people into a place of understanding not only their rights, but many of our civil rights leaders were killed trying to get people to vote. Mm-hmm. Not, not just abolitionists, I'm just saying in the Jim Crow era. So much of our church is built out of protest. You, it's hard, you cannot understand the black church if you do not understand the nature of protest. So um, so we are, we are on, so the fact that the white evangelical church is beginning a conversation about justice is an indication that there is a transformative work happening in that space. Oh, yeah, I see you uh, <clears throat> nodding along. What you got? 
Yeah, I think I think uh, my brother Pastor James over here is, is right on the money. Um, also, I think one stark difference I've noticed is that um, in white evangelical spaces, this myth of objectivity and a uh, neutral way of looking at things is cherished property is something sacred right mm. um because one thing i've noticed like one one conversation one thought exercise i like to run is how is it that that people like okay if we take the the, the southern baptist uh convention like as 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 our our focus right here our experiment and and look at the biblical justification it wasn't like hmm maybe uh chattel slavery is okay it was like no nah, god has ordained this for these mm. people for this reason right um and then all of a sudden it wasn't the case anymore. So I think one of the things that we have to do is examine what about our hermeneutic, what about our theology, what about our interpretation allowed us to reach that conclusion? Yeah. Yeah. And what have we changed about it so that we don't get it wrong in that sense anymore? Because one of two things is true. Either you believe that there was something broken and y'all got this wrong, or you believe they got it right and just executed it wrong. Yeah. One of those two things has to be true, right? Um, and from where I sit, what I see is the the notion of privileged texts. Like there are certain texts that we will pull from the Bible and we will hold like, no, this is okay because of this. Um, and that's not necessarily objective, right? Like we will pull the privileged text that's that, uh, the privileged text that support what we would like to see in the world. And often that's what advantages us. Um, in a lot of black church spaces, we're just a little bit more honest about the fact that, yeah, no, we prioritize this over this, right? <laughs> like, we, we're going to read from this story because this gives us a, a direct road to freedom from, from this bondage mm -hmm. right here. Um, and I think that that's something that we need to be honest about because one of the reasons that the church exists is because theology, because proper worship, orthopraxy, orthodoxy is best done in community because we all bring things to the table. We all bring things to the text. It's about what, what balance can we achieve together? Now, if you don't respect my perspective enough to hear what I have to say and see what I'm seeing in this text, we're, we're, there's not a whole lot of common ground for us. Because in order for us to fellowship together, that means that I have to check a, a, a large part of my dignity and myself mm. at the door. Like me being in this space requires a level of dehumanization that you are not willing to commit to yourself. Right. Um, and, and that's one let of me, the things. Let me, uh, let me jump in right there and, and just say that that's a thing that I still don't know that I fully grasp. I've never had to think about it in that way ever before. And even hearing you say that and knowing that I've been trying to learn to process things in that way, just hearing you say it as, you know, animatedly as you did, as if that's a normal thing to expect. And me sitting over here thinking, I've never even had to think about that for myself is uh, I mean, it's such a challenge to, uh, I mean, we're not even in my, in my way of thinking, but we're not even really talking about paradigms for people like me. We're talking about exploding so much of the assumptions theologically that we've had. That is what made church church. It's what made Christianity, Christianity. So to, to start to dissemble some of that and try to get it down into some component parts that are a little bit different and reassemble it. And I don't want to use the word deconstruct because that's not what I'm aiming at. But even just learning to think about how to approach that situation is like it's like looking at Mars and thinking that there's oxygen there and wondering just it's OK. 
Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a terrifying prospect, you know? Like uh, Robert P. Jones wrote that book, White Too Long, which mm-hmm. he, he cribbed the title from a James Baldwin quote, where he talked about the effect that white supremacy and that lot of thinking has on white people mm-hmm. and how it distorts your own humanity and your empathy and things of that nature. And a lot of times that's, that's what it comes to. That's why there's this big panic over, over critical race theory in the church and everything. Because when you actually deal with the magnitude of, of, of what is ingrained in our way of thinking, it sounds scary. It's like you're trying to uproot an entire way of life. Mm. But at the same token, there's freedom in that, right? Mm. That's why that's why Paul says, uh, do not be uh, conformed to the patterns of the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? That's why Jesus says that uh, whoever clings to your life, if, 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 you'll lose it. But mm-hmm. if you lose if you lose your life, then, then you'll gain it, you know? Um, we have to be willing to let some of these things go if we're going to see everybody live more fully. Because otherwise, what we're asking people to do is to dehumanize themselves to fit the ideal of what we think benefits everyone when it's really benefiting a certain like group of people. And John, is that how you have, uh, go ahead, James. I was just going to, I was going to reiterate what Trey is, is, is hitting at is why so many black people are leaving white institutions right now Mm. because they're tired of paying the black tax. Yes. That's essentially what it is, is that I, I not only have to be in this space and do the work, but I also have to educate my teachers and explain. And now I've got to put in extra amounts of time just to exist here. And when we, when, if, if, if we were all at a conference and Trey and I met each other for the first time and John each other, we would all huddle up at a white conference and people would come over and be like, why are y'all together? And I'm like, we're doing the same thing y'all are doing, but, 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 there's just fewer of us. <laughs> we got different. Op- there's oxygen. Yeah. I'm, I'm fully breathing. When I'm around y'all, I got on this. I'm not being my full self. I'm, I got on a, I'm on a whole nother planet, but when I'm around Trey, when I'm around John, I got oxygen. I'm not paying the tax. And I think yeah. that's that what you, what you hit at Marty, how that's a different planet for you. The fact that you acknowledge that it's the planet rather than saying we're just grouping together. Right. Mm-hmm. But we're actually, operating to humanize ourselves more to mm-hmm. see one another if we can begin that conversation we can go a long way um but i think that the mere fact that we have to explain that yeah. is, is the re- rehearsing of our dehumanization over and over again john i've heard you allude to something like that in other conversations that you and i have had uh you've talked about being on panels and being part of discussions and all this kinds of thing and how it where it, it's worn you out at times uh, to try to explain again after another incident has happened, um, help help folks like me uh, understand uh, the emotional, maybe toll, physical, spiritual toll that it takes for someone like you who is asked to constantly come help us understand. Uh, even though that's basically what I'm doing right now, um, what's the toll that it takes to constantly be the person having to help me be uh, better informed? Yeah, I think I call it um, one of the problems I've seen. I don't want this to make like a, you know, a punching bag for our white brothers and sisters because that's not what it is, right? We all love the kingdom. We love each other. I think some of the undercurrents that we're hearing is, um, you know, I I call it selective justice. Mm. You know, I was on a panel where, you know, there's this idea that like, well, you know, white people don't care about justice. Yes, they do. 
they beat abortion into the ground. Mm. The ground. They Talk beat about sex, it. They beat sex trafficking into the ground. The ground. They Talk like like. It. So what that says is you're being selective in how you're choosing the categories you're choosing to be zealous about. Yeah. And 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 so I, what what makes that draining is when someone's not choosing the category that you're in. And then you have to constantly beg them to see that category. That That is draining. And, and, and the way it feels, if I can give an example, just from an experience of a person who's been incarcerated, uh, one of the challenges that we try to disciple people on that's coming alongside of men and women with criminal records is um, people who um, aren't touched by uh, crime and incarceration or have a loved one who was um, battling meth and has been in out of jail battling their addiction there's a level of empathy that's lost. And so those who haven't experienced it, they come to the conversation for a good story and as academics. And what that does to the individual is traumatize them. So um, no one goes up to a, a man or a woman who's been raped and processing that trauma and says, hey, tell us your story. Hey, let's break down the whole system of how like no one would do that. You know, when someone gets killed in my community and I see mom over there grieving, grandmom grieving, I don't sit down and be like, hey, let's have a conversation right now about the structure of it's not academic to them. And I think what's been lost in the conversation is the ability to truly weep with each other and enter into each other's pain. And and what that does is it leaves the victim in a constant state of revisiting trauma, revisiting trauma, picking the scab apart, um, especially when there's no justice. So when someone hasn't experienced justice and you go to a man, a woman or a child who's been abused and you keep talking to them about the story from an academic perspective, but not actively helping them to pursue justice and even being protective of them, it's, 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 it's draining. So I think us three, we can sit on the conversation um, on this, you know, uh, podcast with you, Marty, because there's, there's capital there. Yeah. We know you actually care. That's right. That's the but key. When I go on a panel discussion and someone asks me, like, you know, what, what, what three books do you recommend? It's like the right. same three I said five years ago. <laughs> like, no. we, don't, we don't need no more panel discussions. You can literally go on YouTube, type in panel discussion on race, and you'll get hundreds of really good panels. And so, so for me, it's, it's what you're seeing right now in, the, in, the, in this, it's really a massive black exodus out of institutions, um, white churches, white organizations, white spaces, okay. is what you're seeing right now is men and women saying, I don't need your validation to feel worth. Right. And I don't need your validation and affirmation to move forward. It's, it's, the, it's the person who's been hurt saying, I don't need you guys over there to understand what happened to me. I'm going to move forward and live my life. And that's the space where I've kind of fallen now. I didn't realize I was operating in a, um, uh, uh, a need to educate mentality. Right, right? I don't educate nobody. And I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's like, hey, if you're asking me and you sincere, I'm available, but you can Google it. Like we Google everything else. It's right. like, hey, help me to understand. It's like, hey, you Google any other category, go Google it. You know, like, and so I think there's a taxing of feeling the need to and frustration in love of needing to constantly be um, a victim and a professor. 
Mm-hmm. And that is very draining to be a victim and a professor. It is, can you imagine? I mean, just, I mean, Mario, just think about this. Think about any other category of victim. And I'm not trying to say all black people are victims. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to get in this argument of all that. But I'm just talking about people are hurting because something has been done to them. And most have personal stories, like you say, right? They're just not heard of. Imagine victims in any context having to be educators, and how traumatizing it is. Just go down, just go down the row of any thing that would happen that would cause a victim. And it's just traumatizing. And so and, and, and so I think what you're seeing right now is this this really this mass exodus of um, we don't need you to stamp anything. And um, you know, we don't believe to or, or will concede to power that your voice is what holds everything because there is this unspoken conversation that's just true where white evangelicalism, it's the unspoken conversation or unspoken reality that that's the, ge- that's the keepers of truth. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why six white men can make a statement and everybody gets in line and it's a big deal, mm-hmm. right? Because there, you know, there's this idea of that that's the gatekeepers. And I, mm-hmm. think you're, I think you're seeing a lot of minorities like, I don't have to believe that. Just because you like people ask me all the time about like critical race theory. I'm like, honestly, I only know a little bit. I don't pay attention to it because that ain't what's going on in my context. Nobody on the west side of Chicago cares anything about critical race theory. At all. Y'all, I mean, y'all like my son probably knows my seven year old son probably knows more about critical race theory than I do. And and, and the reason is because. But here's the thing. If you went to certain white, uh, uh, you know, went to certain white spaces and brought up certain things, they'll be like, yeah, ain't nobody over here thinking about that. And we're not giving time to that. And so it's just the same thing for us. So I just think, um, just to, to, to just give a picture of um, what happened with George Floyd, uh, I agree with my brother James, um, what it did was hearing a grown man call for his mom as he was struggling to breathe for, for white brothers and sisters who wouldn't be necessarily racist, but would be blind to some of their privilege it hit their humanity. And that's what broke last year was for the first time in decades, there were many white brothers and sisters who weren't in the space of academia trying to you know, dissect this thing, but for the first time was like, that ain't right. And I feel that in the depths of my soul. And I don't want no parts of that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I see now some of my privilege cause I've never experienced that. And I want to use that for good. And I don't want to get tagged with anything that has to do with racism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you've seen for the first time was moving from head knowledge to actually feeling that. And um, the, the, the challenge is, is when that's not, and I'll shut up after this, when that's not your natural muscle is kind of, and, and as blacks, we kind of live in emotions, you know, right. and all that we do, whether it's in music or the way we joke. And as you heard earlier about grinding mm-hmm. people up, like we live in that space, right? It's the reason why you go to, you know, some white churches and they all into the message, but ain't nobody like, hey man, preach pastor. It's like, you just keep your emotions <laughs> kind of chill and you go to black church and they like, man, you better bring it home, Pastor James, time to wrap up, right? Right. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, that's not the natural muscle. And I think what you're seeing now with CRT and a lot of other things is, the whole of evangelicalism gravitating back to its natural space of That's now right. let's dissect, let's think. That's right. And, and That's black right. folks yeah. ain't there. In fact, we ain't been there. We were processing, but we're always feeling at the same time. Mm. And if we can work through thinking through these things, 
um, while feeling at the same time, we can make progress. And I think until we can work and feel, we just won't make progress. Can I, I jump? Can I jump on this, Marty? Yeah, yeah. Let me take a. Let me just say right here. I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this. So, what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. James, you wanted to uh, add on to something John was just saying. You know, man, uh, great words. Uh, and, and you mentioned um, how white evangelicals are gravitating more out of an emotional moment of lament and moving more towards academia. And I think what's uh, what I think is compelling about that is that when academia is happening, when there's reading happening, we all we all kind of have spaces that we categorize people in and, and different subject matters in. And I'm, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I know a little bit more about CRT because my, my teaching pastor is, you know, he reads all that stuff. Rasul. Yeah, Rasul reads all that Rasul. stuff. Yeah, he, he just... He just sits there and we've been friends for 20 years. So I just sit and listen to him. So I, I have a good feel for it. But part of what's interesting is all of us know as black leaders that there's black liberals. I mean, we just know that as a fact, but we're co-belligerents when it comes to justice. And so on some way we haven't, we haven't, made an evangelical, uh, like an evangelistic crusade against people in our space because we're co-belligerents trying to fight for, fight against injustice. And white evangelicals are reading Ibram Kendi. They're reading Robin D'Angelo. They're reading all these different people that some, some Black people read, but, but they are getting a feel, you know. And what I think happened is they began to break down the academia of what the conversation is with justice. The problem is they went academic and they never included us in that conversation 
to see how do we, I mean, we can take, we can eat the meat and spit out the bones of CRT or any other. I mean, if white evangelicals, one thing they love is leadership. They, if the devil came out with a book on leadership, <laughs> they'll have them up on the tell. How did, so how do you do it? How do you do levels and hell? And they'll just come and we can break it down and get different perspectives on leadership, knowing we're eating the meat and spitting out the bones. We know that you are not going to give us the full circumference of our thought pattern theologically. Yeah. We just know there's a part of what you want. That's what we do when we are in areas of injustice. We're fighting against us. So we have all types of people in our community and we operate with them. So I think that I think it's just a great point about academia without fellowship. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that academia took over. And I think that's what's happening. They've read and they've they went to the Black Lives Matter website and saw that. The Black Lives Matter website is like, now we're Marxists. I just want yeah. to say we are Marxists. <laughs> and they're just like, this is what we would say. You know what I mean? Like, I would, I'll never forget that going to their website. I'm like, oh, this is what y'all been looking for. The Marxists y'all been looking for. Here they are. <laughs> so, so the reality is when you, and when you do that, and then they start picking off people like Eric Mason, people that went through your institutions. Yeah. You're picking off Charlie Dates, people that went through your institutions, Ralph West people that went through your institution, they ended up picking off the closest black people to them. That's mm -hmm. the part that trips me out. Yeah. That, that you would think that black men that went through white institutions would be the first people to listen to. They are being the first people to sort of quote unquote be exposed as heretics. Yeah. And I think that for me is one of the saddest things. About this whole thing. Well, I want to connect two things. Uh, one, a thing John said and a thing James said, and then say something about the whole CRT thing and lead kind of into that a little bit. Um, James, you said <clears throat> that white evangelicals tried to go, I think you said like from segregation to integration and just change the sign on the door basically and not actually do any kind of hard work. And John, you said that, uh, you're constantly asked, what are the three books I need to read? And I think that goes to, um, white people, not just white evangelicals that generally speaking, we just want the one, two, three solution that gets us to the next thing. We're not looking to repair the reparations argument is going to face an enormous amount of pushback from white evangelicals because we don't look to repair. We look to move on. And so the quicker we can read the three books, then we can say, Hey, I read Jamar Tisby and I read Eric Mason and I read whatever, whoever else. So I'm good to go. You know, I'm, I'm now woke. I'm, I know what's happening. Um, and, we haven't put in the hard work. You know, we, we haven't sat in spaces with you guys and listened to what's your stories or your wives stories or your kids stories. Um, we just assume because we read the book that, uh, or, or that we change the sign from y'all go to y'all come that we've done the thing. And now it's up to y'all to respond to our minor overture, uh, to move things forward. And I think that that is just an ongoing issue. Um, and I think that's largely the result of our being culturally dominant since the founding of the country. Mm -hmm. um, so related to the CRT thing, and uh, what, I, what I'd like to try to do is have a conversation about CRT without it being actually about CRT, because I don't think any of us are that innately interested in critical race theory. But it does seem like that critical race theory is being used as something other than 
a sociological way of looking at things. It's like it's being used as a wedge or a hammer or a blowtorch or something. Y'all have already mentioned that people are leaving. Uh, black pastors are leaving. You mentioned Charlie Dates and Ralph West. Uh, is, are people actually trying to, do you guys feel like there's a contingent of people either in the SBC or in evangelicalism that are attempting to push that that is the goal to push out black pastors? Or do you think that they're just blind to the fact that what they're doing is pushing out black pastors? I don't necessarily believe that pushing out black pastors is an explicit goal. What I believe is the goal is the ongoing experiment and and exercise of assimilation that has been a prerequisite for anybody who is not a white man finding success in America since its inception, right? Um, and that's basically this whole like debates about this going back to you know Booker T. Washington, W. E. B. Du Bois, all that stuff about about uh, what's the best way forward for us and. Always in that argument has been this this whole thing of, okay, well, if they can get like this, then there's nothing else holding them back. And there's this mm. this, this list of things, boxes that we need to check off and oh, you can, oh, get, get yourself a job, uh, be a landowner. And that list evolves over time. But at the end of the day, I think what we're seeing right now is this new list um, that makes a litmus test <laughs> to where we can check you off for being theologically sound or mm. orthodox or whatever. And what CRT is become is is this catch-all for the moment you step outside of, of what makes us comfortable in discussing justice you know mm-hmm. people are like oh no um social justice i'm about biblical justice like what are you even talking about bro you, all, all those nebulous words we like to use um and 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 now um anytime you talk about social justice we need to redirect to biblical justice right. and crt is antithetical to the gospel because it's not in the bible and it says the bible is insufficient and i'm like that is really kind of moving the goalposts because there's plenty of extra biblical worldviews and philosophies we allow in our churches, mm-hmm. um, right? Like like that American flag that's in a lot of the pulpits. That, that, that's not anywhere in the Bible, you know? Um, and what happens is is in trying to maintain unity is what they show us, unity in the body. Uh, we can't talk about this through the lens of critical race theory because uh, that makes all of us feel guilty. And I think what it points to is a broken sense of soteriology. Um, well, in, in a lot of different ways. Like even just now you were talking about how, how we don't like to do the work of reparations. Um, it's just a matter of, okay, we acknowledge it and then we move on. Uh, because we'll all talk about being sinner saved by grace. We're perfectly comfortable saying I'm a sinner saved by grace. But the moment somebody says that, oh, you might be a little racist too. Hold on a second. No, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Like, wait a second. You were just calling yourself a wretched worm. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Why is that racism is the one thing you're uncomfortable being called? Now that I think about it, okay, you're a sinner saved by grace. Be specific. What sins are we talking about? Jesus died to save you from your sins. Be specific. What sins are we talking about? And we have this um, incomplete doctrine of soteriology where the the notion of sin we're fine accepting but really examining what that is and even to the this whole hyper individualist like western approach where salvation is always an entirely individual which i believe it is in part but we neglect the whole um, communal and societal aspect of sin because if we have enough of these broken sinners getting together and constructing societies then that means that some of those things are baked into the mores of how we operate together right um so if we believe that jesus died for our sins right the good news doesn't come until death is defeated until Jesus is resurrected, meaning that new life has to come after the sin that was put to death, 
after the sin that leads to death, new life. We have to imagine new ways of being after we recognize the fullness of, of, of what we've done. So we can't just, oh, acknowledge the fact that, yes, I'm a sinner. No, be specific. Sit with that. Mourn for a moment because it was three days in between Jesus's death and his resurrection. We need to sit with that, mourn, be sad for a little bit, and then imagine new ways and new life. Um, and I think that a lot of times we ignore the fullness of what salvation is because you don't like it's not that jesus like wipes the the the, the, the slate clean and then uh we, we get to start over like no we, we there, there, there's this thing where we have to restructure things but at the same token what turning crt into that sledgehammer does is it turns into a weapon of oh no 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 you touch crt so we don't have to take anything else you're saying seriously and that's how we take all of these people like you said who are going through these institutions uh people <laughs> uh and it's funny will sit there watching out the corner of my eye like who are they coming for next that's why i don't particularly too much identify with a lot of those institutions because I'm like, they not safe. Yeah. Why, why, why walk the, the, the close line if you're going to look for me to slip up one time and, and, and call me out when you get to come up with whatever little heresies you want to describe uh, 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 complementarianism or whatever, you know? Uh, but uh, what we have is this sledgehammer that prevents us from doing the real work of examining uh, the sin that so easily besets us, right? Like, um, so that we can move past that to forgiveness, you know? Shane, uh, who's is that you, John? Was, yeah, I don't want to cut you off, but I have. No, go a, ahead. I, um, I was just going to ramble. I've thought of, I thought about this extensively. Um, I've prayed about it, even as Trey was talking. I've been praying about it before, um, not trying to get no one in trouble, um, but just my honest assessment from observation. Um, one of the reasons why I don't engage CRT much is because I don't feel like it's the main problem. I feel like it's the fruit on the tree. Um, CRT is like, it's like, it's like the coal, right? It's like a coal is just to say that like, it's the, you're sneezing because something's wrong. You got to go get some tying on, right? But I'm sneezing or I got the, you know, I got a fever because something's off. The fever is just a symptom, right? It's just a, and you got to find out, Hey, what's wrong. And um I think what CRT has, has shown, I mean, critical race theory isn't like something that's new. It's been right. around, but it's really developed over the last four years. Who handed that topic um, to evangelicalism? Mm -hmm. It flowed with the current of what was going on in the country. It flowed with the, the, the current, I mean, the same conversation was having, happening nationally in secular politics amongst white Republicans. Mm -hmm. It was currently a threat amongst white Republicans and white conservatives. And I think the symptom is, I do think my white evangelicalism brothers would have to really, and sisters would have to really think very strong about how much their identity is married to America and freedom. Um, you know, what came out this morning that came out yesterday was uh, Rick Santorum. <laughs> and the video, and I know him pretty well because he was in our the state of Pennsylvania for all the years I was there. But his his version of Christianity and the birth of America and freedom being associated with that is the thing that many of our brothers and sisters that's all they know. Um, I have a friend of mine here at our church, dear brother White. And as we were walking through George Floyd, just humbly learning from each other, he's one of my closest friends, top three. 
he said, John, you know what? As I think about it, as a white man in America, I don't really have an ethnicity to, to uh, identify with. Like I, when I think about my heritage, the only thing I could think about is being American. That's what he said to me. Mm-hmm. And it helped me to understand that. And what, what I think is uh, when, you, when you talk about CRT, the thing why it's a big thing now, and it's like the biggest threat to evangelicals and the gospel is because it's a threat to freedom for that demographic. It's a, it's a threat to certain things. And I think so. So all I have to say is um, what was concerning to me about the conversation is how it was birthed in the first place, the first mm-hmm. place. And I, I feel like it was it was a conversation that was being stirred and cooked in the kitchen of secularism that was taken up by many of our brothers and sisters and made the main thing in the church. And so I, to me, if you, you could sit here and argue about is it right or wrong and nitpick it all you want. But to me, it's just it's a it's a it's a symptom of something deeper. And I'm not trying to paint. I don't want to broad brush. Sure. But everybody has their own. Um, weaknesses. I think if you ask me, I think one of the weaknesses that we have in the black community is is really hard to forgive. Like that is that is hard. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of people that, that that I know that would say, "Man, I'm." And, and some of it's understandable, right? It's, it's you're asking one person to acknowledge their acts, and you're asking another person to forgive, and it's it's hard, especially if you're of the older generation when you've seen some things for a while, you just can't let some things go. Um, so everybody has weak spots, but. I think one of the blind spots, if we're just completely honest, is is how ingrained evangelicalism has been with freedom and American culture. It's the reason why white nationalism, you can you can literally go up in the Capitol and and storm stuff and have a noose hanging out front and harm police officers. And that's not an it's, it's not leveled at the same playing field of CRT because it's not considered a threat to majority white culture freedom. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, those are our cousins. They're a little weird, but we don't really care about them. And, and so, so the, the, my assessment, even the whole topic, why I haven't got too much into it, because I don't feel like it's a root issue. I feel like it's a symptom. And I feel like if we talk around it, without, it's, it's like when I'm walking with someone who's struggling with pornography or alcoholism, like that's the fruit of a heart symptom. We need to get down into the heart and the void that's there and what's creating that. And so I, I just feel like you can write all the books you want, but I feel like you're missing a target because until you get to the heart of the matter, you're just dealing with symptoms. And, and, and I think our brothers and sisters should strongly consider how ingrained um, freedom, the American way of life has really stepped in as a really like an ethnic group and identity form. And to some degree, it's not necessarily bad. Every country has, you know, my family is from Jamaica. I take great pride in watching the Olympics and see us mm-hmm. outrun folks and I cheer on that. Right. And so, so I'm not, I'm not against that, but th- my identity isn't rooted in that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make me who I am. And so that would be what I would say. So James, I see you about to say something, but I, that's why I haven't engaged it a whole lot because to me, it's, it's not the, it's not the root, you know? James, do you, do you see any intentionality behind it? Or do you think, cause you've been in this for a long time. You've been in the SBC for a long time. You've been aware of things behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. Do you see intentionality behind this? Do you see ignorance behind it? What, what exactly are you seeing? Um, let me just uh, piggyback and kind of make note of something John said, and then I want to touch on that. Um, John, one of the things that you had mentioned is that, you know, the birth of this conversation was really birthed out of a political 
sphere and in a cultural sphere. Um, and I think that's important that we, we frame that. But I also think it's important as you, as you spoke about black people and, you know, some of our own challenges. I think one of the things that we have to be careful about is not to counterbalance cultural problems. Like well, they have problems and we have problems because, you know, there could be a whole argument that black people might be the most forgiving people on the planet. Um, True. True. That whole conversation. I think one of the things that we have to start being comfortable with is the word heretics, because I don't because I, I'm finding that there are a lot of white people that I'm, when I talk about white evangelicalism, in many ways, I'm not talking about the individual person of a white person. I am talking about power and I'm talking about the way that whiteness was constructed in our society in order to do away with any kind of foreigner mentality and then take on a supremacy mentality. And this, and there's a, there's a way in which Christendom or Christian supremacy, this top down approach to society is white evangelicalism's co, uh, co-conspirator in the way that things operate in our country. And so I'm very comfortable with partnering with white people, black people, but when I talk about white evangelicalism and the way it operates with white power, I see a lot of black people operating with it. Like, you know, Say that again. Yeah. I, I, I was I was talking to one pastor and he was like, well, you know, James, I hear what you're saying, but I interviewed three black guys at my church and they got no problem. They love Trump and all this and all that. And I'm just like, OK, one of the things I have to start articulating is that this is a theological problem and that there will be people who. That's a good word. Simply don't agree with me because if we keep making it a cultural thing, you're gonna they're gonna find a a black person who parrots what they want, and it, and that that leads to uh, and uh, um, I hope you receive what I'm saying, John. But yeah, but, no, that's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. But I, but 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 then going to this point you brought out uh, in terms of the SBC or you know how things are operating. I, first of all, what I, what I said earlier was white evangelicalism went from segregation to diversity. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and so it, even today, that's all you hear about is diversity. Mm-hmm. So if you start bringing up justice, we got whole books on, you know, somebody just texted me why, why, you know, social justice is not biblical. Justice. If somebody said social diversity, nobody, there's no problem with diversity. We love diversity. It's when you talk about justice that really gets at inherent questions about how, why do you have a nice house? And why does somebody else down the street not have a nice house? And we have to start having that conversation. What I think is ultimately happening in white institutions is not trying to get black people out. They're very comfortable with black color. They're uncomfortable with black culture. Mm. And so it's black people preaching a historical narrative that has been being preached. For, I mean, you know what the craziest thing in the world is Martin Luther King's message at the Marshall in Washington is pared down to 30 seconds. And it's about this, you know, utopia that mm-hmm. we're going to when the majority of the message was an indictment on America about a blank check. Yeah. And, that, and so if, if you allow black people 
black preachers to preach in the historical way they've been preaching. And what and what happened was, if you ever noticed this, I was in a conversation one time, and then I'll, I'll pass it back to you, Marty. I was in a conversation one time, and um, we were talking about, you know, the, this guy was like, man, you need black, I'm thinking about black guys that I want to invite to this conference. And he's Eric Mason, um, the BD, and John O, and the hottie, and mm, Charlie Dates. And, and I said, you ever notice all those people you're talking about are in their late 30s and mid 40s? You ever notice that? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I, yeah, yeah, you ever notice that? So there'll be Tim Keller, who is an old man, older gentleman. But, you know, we have, in other words, you have a cadre of. Way to clean that up, James. <laughs> I know him. I know him. I actually work for him. I want to say. Um, but you, you have this cadre, you have this menu of older white men you can go to, right? But you don't know any old black men outside of Tony Evans that you respect theologically. Why is that? And if we if we if we really press in, it's because the white evangelical church decided to make theological VBS right to invite young leaders and train them instead of having a conversation with peers. Wow. And that's essentially what you see happening is the BD is the BD's got gray hair like me, but he's in his 40s. Like Eric Mason. Yeah, the BD is the BD is only like two years older than me. Dead gummit. Yes, the bee's only a few years older than me. But my, my, my point is, is that all these dudes, none of us are really old, man. None of us are old. We're fairly young. Hmm. We, we, went, we, we graduated in the 90s. That's what happened. And, and the reality is, you never talked to my dad, who is a PhD in, in, and, and is a dean of a seminary. You never talked to my dad. Hmm. You never talked to Gardner Taylor. You never had a conversation with him. You did what churches do to create diversity. They have a youth church and they go over and they get they get candy and they get a bus and they drive around and they get people who who are going to be who have less questions. So you end up with Africans who immigrate and you end up with black kids who are hungry. And that's what your diversity is in your church. But you never talk to peers because peers will hold you accountable for injustice. Peers have deep questions about why weren't you there for me? That's why, so, so ultimately what's happening is Eric Mason's getting older. I'm getting older. This wasn't like this 2010, 2009, 2008, when we were all happy to just have a platform, when we were all happy to have scholarships. We mm. all got scholarships. We all were the diversity at Dallas Seminary, at West. We, were all, we all did that. But then mm. we grew up and had churches and we started preaching the full counsel of God and then we said, yo, aren't we all mad about Trayvon? Ma- oh, y'all ain't mad? Oh, okay. Well, let me just start yeah. talking to you about the minor prophets and the major prophets, the stuff y'all taught me. Mm-hmm. Mm. So this is not, this is not CR, this is not about CRT. This is about y'all are not acting the way we taught you to act. Oof. Ooh. Y'all are not doing what we trained you to do. Eric, you better shut that down. You went to Dallas Theological Seminary. You better pipe down. That's what that, mm. and that's facts, and, I, and I'm and I'm saying that's from what I know from being in these spaces is that they loved they had he was all over billboards. Come on, yeah, man. he was, yeah, he was. He was all over billboards. Ain't, ain't nothing changed. Ain't nothing changed. So I think mm. 
you know, and I, and just, yeah. Well, what's happening, uh, part of what's happening is a judgment on white evangelicalism. Uh, our refusal to do what you just said, uh, to listen and to learn, to be confront to our willingness to be confronted uh, or lack of willingness to be confronted specifically. Um, so that when what I think was a political calculation to unify a voting block decide determines to use CRT as the hammer right. or the wedge, either one to split that thing. They didn't intend, I don't think for black pastors to leave, but when they did, it was okay. They're not going to go get them. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's right. That's a way to put it. That's yeah. a way to put it. Yeah. Uh, it's a consequence of orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what you were talking about earlier is, is what has been challenging me since uh, George Floyd's murder. Um, it, it has been that issue of how do I reconcile the theology that I've been taught, that I've embraced, that I've always known. How do, how do I reconcile the fact that that, yeah, there's some stuff in it that's right, but there's this whole wing of theology that I was never exposed to. Not, I wasn't taught it was wrong. I wasn't even taught it was there. It, it's just a, th- you know, it's just, ne- somebody said nebulous earlier. I mean, it's just like the ether. It, it doesn't exist. And so, um, so I'm trying slowly, but surely to, um, to educate myself on some of these things so that when I get in a group with you guys, I'm not like, what are they talking about? I at least have some baseline to be able to figure out. Uh, John, when we had that conversation last year, I guess it was with Darren and um, uh, you and Darren and who else was it? Uh, Stephen, Stephen Love. Um, And you guys all came in to to the zoom and you were greeting each other. And it was like, y'all were on the basketball court getting ready to take some shots. And I'm sitting there on the edge watching, I think I know what's going on right now, but I'm not sure I know what's going on right now, but they're having a lot of fun at it. So I'm just going to sit here. Um, I feel like most white evangelicals, when it comes to Job and his three friends, we're always Job in our own minds. Mm. When most of the time, if there's any sitting to be done, we're Job's friends and we're just waiting for the opportunity to start judging. And um, so what we sit with is our own uh, pride and our own certainty rather than sitting with Job in his, in his, uh, in his hurt and his pain. So um, guys, I'm really thankful that you, uh, you stopped by today. This has been super helpful for me. I know it was going to be helpful for a lot of folks. Um, so uh, I'm, I want to, I want to continue these conversations individually and as a group, just whenever, you know, you can always hit me up. So John, thanks. Trey, thanks. And James, Thank thanks. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.